Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1? And so we are currently in Romans chapter 1, where Paul is proving that the natural man, you know, unbelievers, pagans, uh, the pagan unbeliever is condemned by God. Why is he or she condemned? Well, he tells us in verses 19 and 20, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So just by way of review, in other words, even people who have never, uh, even people who have never heard the gospel preached to them have had the knowledge of God revealed to them through the creation. And Paul is telling us that although the creation is incomplete, in its revelation of God. In other words, it doesn't give us any specifics about him. I mean, we know he's powerful from looking at the creation. We know he, he, he loves beauty because we see it everywhere in color and so on. But the creation doesn't give us anything specific about him. doesn't tell us his name. doesn't tell us what he loves, what he hates, how we can have a relationship with him and so on. However, the creation is still a clear enough revelation of God's existence that Paul is telling us that anyone who looks at the creation and rejects the existence of God is without excuse and will be held accountable by him on the day of judgment. Now, we've covered that, but Paul has just started his indictment of the pagans with verses 19 and 20. He now elaborates on their guilt before God, starting in verse 21. So, Paul goes on to say, because although they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, we hear a lot of talk today about spiritual warfare. I mean, more than usual. You can't really turn on Christian TV or radio without some preacher, pastor, or evangelist talking about how spiritual warfare is ramping up. And I agree with that. No two ways around it. I mean, books are being cranked out. Conferences are springing up everywhere, promising to train Christians how to be victorious soldiers for Jesus in the battle against the forces of wickedness in the spirit realm. You know, many in the Word of Faith movement have their own unique strategies for defeating these demonic enemies, even developing special phrases that must be uttered if demons are going to be sent screaming into the abyss. Got to know these phrases. Kind of magic. And while I disagree with much of the thinking and techniques that undergird the spiritual warfare movement, I nevertheless believe in and take very seriously spiritual warfare itself. If I were to ask you to turn to some of the passages in Scripture, that deal with the subject of spiritual warfare, I doubt if any of you would turn to our text tonight. 
And yet Romans 1, verses 21 to 25, is one of the greatest in all the Bible for laying out what is really at the heart of all spiritual warfare. Now, before we look at the passage in Romans 1, let's set the stage by looking at one of the classic uh, passages uh, on spiritual warfare in the New Testament. Turn over to Ephesians 6. Of course, you all know it. This is one of the classic passages. Everyone knows Ephesians 6. No doubt this would have been one that you would have turned to immediately if I had asked you to turn to your favorite passage on spiritual warfare. Let's read it, starting with verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now Paul continues on down through verse 18, but we'll just stop there. Look, you all know it, but let me say it. When we gave our lives to Jesus, we entered into a war. A war that, although invisible, is still very much real. We are at war with an extremely powerful, super-intelligent, hyper-malevolent spirit being known as the devil, who commands a very powerful demonic army. The devil and his army are determined to destroy your walk, your witness, and your ministry for God, starting with your marriage. A lot of what's going on in marriages can be traced directly to spiritual warfare. A lot of couples understand spiritual warfare. They know what the Bible teaches on spiritual warfare. They're just not connecting the dots when it comes to the problems in their own marriage. That's another subject. We'll get to that eventually, no doubt, soon. But the devil wants to bring you down so that God gets no glory from your life. And guys, let me say it again. I've said it before. He will. He isn't playing games and will do whatever it takes to accomplish his mission. You're in the crosshairs. Because when you put on Christ, you put on a bullseye for Satan to fire his fiery arrows at. Now Paul drives this theme home, that we are soldiers of Christ. He drives it home in various places in his writings. It's not a unique thing he mentions one time. This is a theme that's kind of woven uh, throughout. His, he uses different, he likes sports metaphors, okay? Um, but he also likes the warfare, soldier metaphor, all right? Uh, one of the most famous passages on this subject is 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul tells Timothy, remember now, Timothy is a young pastor. He said, you, you therefore must endure hardships, uh, hardship, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, besides Ephesians 6, the other classic passage on the subject of spiritual warfare is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Would you turn there, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
And I want to read verses 3 to 5, where Paul says, for, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I don't know if you realize this, but this is what real spiritual warfare is all about and how it is to be fought. Let me paraphrase uh, what Paul is saying here. He is saying, for although we live in these physical bodies, we don't fight this war like any other war man has ever fought on earth. We can't fight this war with physical weapons, you know, guns, smart bombs, tanks, bazookas. But take heart, because God has provided his people with spiritual weapons that are more than able to pull down the devil's strongholds. In these verses in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul is telling us about, listen, the true nature of spiritual warfare. Primarily, that spiritual warfare is all about pulling down strongholds. See that in verse 4? Spiritual warfare is all about pulling down strongholds. Now, the NASB translates 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 as, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In other words, these weapons don't come from man. They have been given to us by God because only they will be able to bring down these, these strongholds or fortresses that we face. It's interesting that the word for fortress in the Greek could also be translated prison and tomb. These fortresses that we assault are the fortresses of the damned that are really their prisons and will become their tombs if someone does not set them free. As Paul chose his words, and I should say Paul chose his words carefully because he wanted us to know what we are up against. As one pastor put it, he said, and I quote, We are assaulting massive stone fortresses not cardboard houses or tents, and you can't do that with pea shooters and pop guns shooting ping pong balls, end quote. Look, you can't pull down these fortresses with clever gimmicks and verbal formulas as the Word of Faith movement teaches. You can't pull these, these fortresses down with human philosophies like psychology or self-help programs, which are rampant in the church, by the way. It takes something much more powerful to smash these satanic fortresses. So what are these mighty weapons God has given to us to smash these strongholds, these fortresses? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us, because Paul doesn't mention it here in 2 Corinthians 10. He just says the weapons, plural, of our warfare are mighty in God or divinely, uh, you know, divinely powerful. What are they? They're the word of God in prayer. You say, but it doesn't say that in 2 Corinthians 10. Does it have to? What else you got, folks? Now, in Ephesians 6, he does mention the word of God in prayer. Now, let me just say this. Okay, so the weapons are the word of God in prayer. Okay, great. 
But what are these fortresses? Well, some people think that spiritual warfare against fortresses is talking about demons and that real spiritual warfare is to engage yourself in chasing demons. Running after this demon and that demon, what am I talking about? The demon of lust, the demon of sickness, of poverty, of alcohol, cigarettes. This is one I heard of chocolate cake. That's the demon that's hassling me. <laughs> the demon of chocolate cake. But, but, they, but they teach. Spiritual warfare is, is, is all about running after this demon and that demon, binding them along with Satan, pronouncing judgments upon them, and sending them to the abyss. You've got you to find out where they are. I don't think you have to look far. But no, you... And so there was something, it's probably still around, called the Spiritual Warfare Movement, which taught about territorial demons. Now, these are demons that, that really had a hold on certain territories. Many of these folks would claim that the major cities today that are racked with violence and corruption and wickedness and sexual immorality, these are spiritual strongholds, demons have have really gotten a hold on these cities. And, uh, you know, and on one hand, I could say, well, I, I do kind of believe that. But it, it got kind of strange because as a group of these folks met, uh, someone said God gave them a word that there was a spiritual, a demonic stronghold on Mount Everest. So they actually organized the party and they went to Mount Everest. I'm not saying they climbed to the very top, but they went to Mount Everest and climbed up a certain height, and they began to do battle with these demons because this was a demonic stronghold. These territorial demons had taken up residence there. Folks, if there are demons on or at the top of Mount Everest, great. As long as they stay there, I don't care. It's not the demons on Mount Everest I worry about. It's the ones that come across my path every single day. I mean, folks, that is not what spiritual warfare is all about. In fact, that's ridiculous. A couple of scriptures. Why don't you turn to Luke 22 and then put your finger there and also 2 Corinthians 12. We'll start with Luke 22 and then move to 2 Corinthians 12. Because I want to talk to you about what, what does the scripture say? You know, so often people come up with these things. And, and maybe they pull a scripture out of context and they run with it. And now they got a whole theology. But what does the Bible say on any given subject? Obviously, we need to be Bereans. You know, Acts 17, 11, that Paul went from Thessalonica to Berea and preached the word. And it says that the people of Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received what Paul had to say, but they went back and searched the scriptures for themselves to make sure what he was telling them was biblical. That's very important that you do with any teacher that you're listening to. But in Luke 22, verses 31 and 2, Jesus is talking to Peter, Simon. So the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, folks, I have no idea what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. <laughs> Verse 32, but I have bound him 
in my name. No, it doesn't say that. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. How about 2 Corinthians 12? Starting with verse 7. Where Paul said, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. God gave Paul a lot of revelations. He wrote most of the New Testament. But because God didn't want me to become exalted or puffed up, because of all the revelations, he also gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now Paul knew it was of the devil. Lest I be exalted above measure. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, guys, if this doctrine of binding Satan was valid, why didn't Paul use it when he was being attacked by the devil? He knew it was the devil. It wasn't, I don't know what's happening. This is terrible. No, he knew it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. If this was a legitimate biblical doctrine, why didn't Paul say, and, uh, you know, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me, but I bound him in the name of Jesus. I don't hear that anywhere. I accept it as being something God allowed to teach me certain things I wouldn't be able to learn any other way. Paul didn't bind Satan because Satan can't do anything unless God allows him to, right? Satan doesn't act independently. Read Job chapter 1. Some people have the concept of the devil, that he and God are, that he is the counterpart of God. That the devil is like God's equal in a counterpart kind of a way. That is absolutely ridiculous. God is the creator. He is infinite. He is almighty. Lucifer was the creation. A powerful angel, no doubt. But no match for God. Why does God allow Satan to continue? If he's stronger than the devil, why does he allow the devil to continue? You want the short answer? Because Satan is serving the purposes of God. He is serving the purposes of God, who is using him to teach us how to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, how to persevere under pressure, and ultimately the goal is to conform us into the image of our Lord and Savior. The Arabs have a saying, all sunshine makes a desert. We need warfare. We need warfare because it toughens us and strengthens us. Uh, in the Old Testament, when God was about to lead the children of Israel into battle into the, in the promised land, he said, I'm not going to give you victory in one day, lest you become complacent, and lest the land be overrun with bad stuff he said it's good for you to go for to go through warfare it's necessary understand that that god is using the devil he is serving the purposes of god god is using him to teach all of us how to be good soldiers of jesus christ how to persevere how to hang in there and how not to give up when we are confronted with an ongoing struggle or battle who does the battle ultimately belong to the battle belongs to the lord 
ultimately he's the one who's fighting for us, through us, and so on. Now some of you might be thinking, so what you're saying, Phil, is I shouldn't do anything? When Satan attacks me, I should just submit to it? No, I'm not saying that. Just because God is allowing it and using it doesn't mean he necessarily wants it to go on indefinitely. I'm saying that, I'm basically saying what James and Peter said. You don't have to turn to these to write down the reference. James 4, verse 7. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, not rebuke the devil. Resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Guys, we are commanded to resist the devil uh, being steadfast in the faith, but we are never commanded to bind the devil. Now, I understand, well, didn't Jesus say whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and so on? Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's not, he was not talking about what is being taught today with regard to binding Satan and loosing the blessings of God. Binding and loosing were, were rabbinic terms. The context was go into the, uh, into the world, preach the gospel. Whoever believes is saved. Whoever does not believe will not be saved, obviously. But the idea is, and they want to say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and so on. The idea is, the rabbis had a, a saying that when a person uh, refused to believe, they were bound. They were not forgiven. They were not, you know, uh, if they did believe, they were loosed. In other words, the blessings of God. They were, the Greek word for loosed, luo, um, is also a word that Jesus used in John 10 for taking a full complete bath a complete cleansing luo all right um it's, it's to release but the context indicates release from what release from filth peter said one day the lord is going to luo the entire universe loose it he's holding it all together by the word of his power right Adam should blow apart because the nucleus is filled with neutrons, neutrally charged particles, and uh, protons, positively charged particles, and positive charges repel. And of course, orbited by one or more electrons. What is holding the nucleus of the atom together? Scientists don't really know. They talk about atomic glue. That's ridiculous. The Bible tells us, he who created all things by the word of his power holds it all together by the same word of his power. But one day he's going to let go. He's going to loose it. And you're going to have an atomic explosion the size of the universe as every atom in the universe is going to tear apart, creating, well, as the Bible says, the entire creation as we know it now will be vaporized in zillion degree heat. Talk about the Big Bang didn't happen in the beginning. It happens at the end. But I want you to understand something. We are commanded to resist the devil, being steadfast in the faith, but we are never commanded to bind him. You know who bound the strong man? Which allows us now to take territory away from the devil for the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ. He bound the strong man at Calvary's cross. 
And then he said, go into all the world now. Preach the gospel to every person. Because the strong man was defeated on Calvary's cross. And our Savior's coming back to take possession of what he's bought and paid for. But how do we resist the devil? We don't bind him. Here's the thing. Christians believe, well, I bound the devil with my words. I learned that verbal formula at the last Word of Faith conference. I bound the devil. Why does he keep getting loose if you bind him all the time? All these Christians binding the devil. Why does he keep getting loose? Because he's hassling me every day. Now, we are to resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? By putting on the whole armor of God every day and walking closely with the Lord. You can check out Ephesians 6, verse 11, because when you do that, then you'll be able to stand against the devil. Put on the whole armor of God. Every day, walk closely with the Lord. Abide in Him. And the devil will not... He might attack you, but he'll never be victorious over you. So, what is real spiritual warfare all about? How is it really fought in one? And what are these strongholds or fortresses Paul is talking about? Well, what are these strongholds? Let me ask the, answer this question first because it'll answer everything else. What are these strongholds? Well, verse 5 tells us. Look at verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So pulling down strongholds in verse 4 relates to casting down arguments in verse 5. In verse 4, you have the metaphor. Verse 5 explains the metaphor. These strongholds or fortresses are arguments. You say, well, okay, can you give me a little more? <laughs> okay, they're arguments. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word is logismos. And it means thoughts, opinions, philosophies, theories, or to sum it up, ideologies. Ideologies are belief systems. So spiritual warfare is all about pulling down, casting down ideologies. All the aberrant ideologies that people take refuge in. All the strongholds of Satan's lies, whether they are the wisdom of man or doctrines of demons. All the things that people seek to fortify themselves in against the, the true knowledge of God. These are the fortresses that we are up against. These fortresses aren't demons. But they are the doctrines and philosophies that demons inspire. All the things that fallen man sets up in rebellion and in defiance of God and his word. The and is chi in the Greek and should be translated even. Paul is saying that we are fighting against ideologies, even every high thing. In other words, every proud, arrogant, lofty ideology that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Guys, spiritual warfare is primarily ideological in nature. You mean to tell me he's not casting out demons? Well, that's part of it. Small part. Jesus cast out demons. But are you talking about spiritual warfare primarily? It's ideological in nature. In other words, we are fighting against the lies, thoughts, opinions philosophies and theories that people raise up against the true knowledge of God. Or to put it another way, spiritual warfare is all about fighting against the brainwashing of the devil. 
how that he has pumped incessantly into the minds of people through mass media and other outlets all of his satanic propaganda, all of his anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-Bible ideologies. I mean, this would include all the false religions of the world. It would include the cults and all the assorted isms out there, atheism, communism, Marxism, secular humanism, and the one that dominates our universities and centers of science, politics, and education, the reigning ideology of our day, naturalism. And we studied that last week. Now, compare Romans 1. Verses 21 and 2, with what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, and you will see he's talking about the same thing. That's why I brought you there. In fact, it happens to be the same word used in Romans 1, 21. Let me read it to you. Because although they knew God, now he's talking about pagans, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, legismos, futile in their belief systems. You know, my pastor used to say it's amazing. The ridiculous nonsense a person will cling to, believe in, when they reject the truth of God. I, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at how super intelligent people, scientists, educators, professors who reject the gospel as being implausible, stupid, nonsensical, then turn right around and embrace the most ridiculous nonsense, thinking themselves so intelligent. We'll see this in greater detail next time. But Paul says that they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, became futile in their thoughts and their legismos, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul carries the idea of spiritual warfare being waged primarily in the mind, which is the place where ideologies or belief systems originate. He carries that idea down into verse 28 of chapter 1 of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 28 reads, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased what? a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Guys, primarily on a day-by-day -day basis, spiritual warfare is all about rescuing people who have been taken captive by the devil through his lies. And we have the truth that alone can set them free. It's called the gospel. The gospel. Let me read to you John 8, verses 31 and 2 out of the Amplified Bible. You all know it, but let me read it to you the Amplified. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, in other words, hold fast to my teachings and live in accordance with them, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if you study John 8, the context is the devil's lies which the Pharisees chief priests, religious leaders of Israel had embraced. You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies, Jesus would say in John 8. That's the context. But if you come to, my, come to me, embrace the truth that I give, my word, and continue, that's the key, and continue in it faithfully, 
you will prove yourself to be my disciples truly. Indeed is the Greek word aletheis, truly. And you will know the truth and God's truth will set you free from the devil's lies. Is the whole context. Guys, spiritual warfare is the battle between the truth of God and the lies of the devil and the main battlefield where it is fought is in our minds for control of our thinking. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now this starts, of course, with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine on them. Well, you read that and go, well, gee, that doesn't seem fair that Satan's allowed to blind their minds so that they can't believe the gospel. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't mean they're helpless victims. Satan can only bind their minds because they love darkness, Jesus said in John 3. They love darkness. They love living evil, sinful lives rather than loving and living the light of God's truth. And because they have embraced darkness, the devil has allowed them to harden their hearts even more to keep them from the truth. Now, God is so merciful and gracious. There are many people who have had a really hard heart. But God mercifully worked, and suddenly their eyes were opened, and they received Christ. You say, well, is that the end of it then? <laughs> is that the end of Satan's attacks on our thinking? No. No, no, no. Uh, it, it, he's just getting started. All right? I mean, even after we get saved, the satanic attacks in our minds don't end. 2 Corinthians 2.11, talking about Satan, lest Satan should take advantage of us believers, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Some translate that his mind games. Even after we're saved, the devil keeps trying to play mind games on us trying to get us to think a certain way, trying to, to get us to justify sin or to think we're not saved so that we give up and stop being a threat to his kingdom and so on. But again, the mind is the central battleground, the central battleground where most spiritual warfare is fought because, again, Satan knows if he can control your thinking, he can control you. And guys, that's why the New Testament has so much to say about our minds as Christians. I'm not going to have you turn to these. I'm just going to have you write down the references. I just want to give you a flavor of what I'm talking about. There's many others. I just want to give you a little flavor of, of how important the mind is and how Satan targets it and why the New Testament has so much to say about our minds before and after we got saved. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind, now that you're saved, on things above, not on things on the earth. Mark 12.30, Jesus said, The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the supreme commandment over all commandments. Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul talks about how the mind controlled the way we lived he said among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind 
Romans 8, 7, because Paul said, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. When Satan is controlling a person's mind, he is obviously controlling it in, with regards to our fallen nature. If he can get us to think certain behaviors that our flesh wants to do are okay. I mean, you'd be amazed at what I have heard over my years in ministry of, of the things that people have said to justify sin, making it sound spiritual. What do I mean? I had a friend I was witnessing to, and he tried to tell me that committing adultery with your neighbor, isn't that the same as loving your neighbor? I think you know what I told him. Get behind me, Satan. But this is, well, it's out there, right? Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and enemies of God in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. And that's why the Bible teaches that salvation begins with a change of mind. The Bible says that salvation requires a person to, first of all, repent, right? Jesus said in Mark 1, verse 15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 17, verse 30, Paul said, Truly these times of ignorance, talking to pagans, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means in the Greek to change your mind. To change your mind. Once a person repents and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then Christians are commanded now, Romans 12 verse 2, and do not be conformed, let me paraphrase, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So once we receive Jesus, we've repented of our sins, of our old life. We've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit moves in, right? He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new way of thinking. But we don't have to feed that. We can still think carnally. There are carnal Christians. Why are they carnal? Because they're still thinking carnally. Why are they thinking carnally still? Because they're not in the Word getting their minds reprogrammed from all the brainwashing of the devil. They're trying to, to have the kingdom and have the world and, and try to have both in their lives. When the Bible says very clearly, choose this day whom you're going to serve. You're going to serve the world or you're going to serve the Lord? As for me and my house, Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. It has to be that choice. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. You either hate the one and love the other or vice versa. You cannot serve the world in God. But you have a lot of Christians who are carnally minded. It's because primarily they are listening to teaching that's telling them God wants to satisfy every carnal desire. They don't call it that. But God wants to satisfy every carnal desire that you have. 
because those are the blessings he wants to give you prosperity and and total health and all kinds of you know riches and things like that and if anything ever happens to take away from you those things that's the devil you rebuke the devil you rebuke the sickness you rebuke the poverty because that's not what god wants for his kids well, i don't know he had a son named jesus who when he died only owned the clothes on his back went to the cross and died a very painful death so that we might live the bible says that true spiritual christians understand that the christian life is not a bed of roses it's a difficult path it's the path of jesus and you know what we undergo things like sickness and poverty and other things most often it's god trying to teach us lessons that we couldn't learn any other way but if you rebuke those things well then you're saying i don't believe this is of god you'll never learn anything if you don't think it's of god and so it's a tragedy to see how carnal some christians are and yeah i do blame their their pastors and leaders but you know it's not all their pastors and leaders faults we all have a responsibility to be Bereans. But a lot of times, and in these last days, as Paul said, people would not want to hear sound doctrine. The Greek is healthy teaching. But would in, instead would want to have their ears tickled. So they would going to raise up or gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear which are obviously nothing more than fairy tales. How that you're really a, a God because you're a child of God. When God has children, he has little gods. So you're a God. And as God spoke and things happened and came into existence, you can speak things into existence. That's a fairy tale. You've heard about the princess who kissed the frog? That's more plausible than that. <laughs> that I'm a God. Yeah, the problem is whenever I think I'm a God, it's always with a little G. And the real God is not happy when we try to be gods in our own lives. Now, I'm talking about unbelievers primarily, but even Christians can sometimes fall into that trap where they start thinking, well, I can be in charge. I just have to have enough faith. And I have to just speak and things have to happen because God's my what? servant they wouldn't say it that way but isn't that what you're saying that if i had enough faith and learned the secret formula of saying the right things the right way i can have whatever i want you can write your own ticket with god no that's a fairy tale that has been forged in the in the you know, halls of hell reject that once a person repents and receives jesus christ now we are under a brand new directive. Don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? By, by uh, feeding yourself on God's word. Because that will renew your mind. It will reprogram you. You've been, and I were brainwashed all of our lives by the devil. 
And so now I need to be unbrainwashed. I need to start thinking new thoughts, a new way. And that comes as I fill my mind with the Word of God, but not just fill my mind with God's Word on any given day. As Jesus said in John 8, uh, 31 and 2, if you continue in my Word, continue, you'll be my disciples truly. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So spiritual warfare is all about freedom. Depending on who you talk to, they, a lot of people wouldn't come to that conclusion. I'm telling you, from our study tonight and just looking at this subject biblically, spiritual warfare is not really about casting out demons. I'm not saying that's a small part of it. Spiritual warfare, biblical spiritual warfare, is all about freedom. First of all, our own freedom from the bondage of sin and death and Satan, our inward struggles with the flesh, our bondages, things that you know, that we are in bondage to, the drugs, the alcohol, the pornography, whatever it is. And the idea is that we can't be free of these things. The devil has a hold on us. We're not strong enough to do battle against the devil in our own strength, right? What I need is somebody stronger than the devil to give me victory. His name is Jesus. Oh, but I'll try harder. All right, you go ahead and call me when you're ready to. Jesus taught, don't try harder. Abide longer. Draw close to the Lord. Get close to him. Let his spirit fill you constantly. Because Paul said, the life that I now live, I don't live in the flesh. I live in the Son of God. He lives his life through me. That, that's what I need. I don't need for God. God, give me more strength. I mean, I pray that too. But what we really should be praying is, Lord, give me more of Jesus. Give me more of your spirit. Well, how does that work? Are you drawing close to God? Keep confessing your sins. And as the Holy Spirit keeps filling you, he keeps pushing out the, the dirt, the garbage until you are fully filled with the Spirit, and then He begins to overflow onto the people around you. And you become a channel of living water to people you come in contact with, and they start getting saved. Because you're just so filled, you're over, you know, the Spirit is overflowing, right? Spiritual warfare is all about freedom. Ours first of all, and then how God will use us to help others be free of the devil as well. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And as the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2.10, he's enlisted us as soldiers. And people say, well, I didn't sign up for this. What would you sign up for? Well, I don't know, Pastor, but I didn't sign up for this. I was promised a prosperous business, the nicest house in the neighborhood, and a couple of nice cars. I didn't sign up for this warfare stuff. Well, let me just disabuse you to use a a word that one of the governors used in our country let me disabuse you of your faulty concept when you accepted jesus christ i don't know if you didn't read the fine print it's not really fine print but let me just tell it to you straight you're in the army now that's all there is to it 
And when a lot of Christians find out what's involved in fighting a good fight of spiritual warfare, they go A-W-O-L. Where are they? Well, they used to come every week. What happened? Well, the devil attacked in some way. They couldn't deal with it, so they ran for cover. I had a cousin who was on fire for the Lord years ago. A couple nights in a row, three nights, the devil gave him some kind of terrifying dreams. He packed up and went home. He just, I, 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 can't, do, I can't deal with this. Really? Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you think you can't do it and you're going to, you know, you're going to go AWOL, that's up to you. But for the rest of us who are fighting the good fight, I need you guys. I draw strength from your walk and your commitment and your love for the Lord. We need each other. Don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. We need one another is the idea. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and is our captain. He has enlisted us in this war. He wants us to continue to fight the good fight of faith in the battle with the God of this world, the devil, which is being waged for the souls of men and women, many of whom we know and love. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. We'll bring it to a close. Again, you all know it. Let me read it to you. 2 Timothy 2, starting with verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Now we're talking, he's talking about reaching people with the gospel. You're not going to argue somebody in the kingdom. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. Because again, spiritual warfare is giving people the truth of God, teaching them what's true, so that it exposes the lies of the devil. Okay? But a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So the word of God is light. And when you give the word of God gently, kindly, patiently, not arguing, you give it to people. As more and more light enters into their minds, the Holy Spirit starts to use that to show them, well, wait a minute now. This goes against what I've always believed. But this makes a lot of sense to me, what this Christian's telling me. And as more light comes in and they start receiving more light, at one point, there's enough light for them to be saved. He has translated them from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a miracle. That is a flat-out miracle. People can go to church. But when we're talking about God's church. You cannot join it. You have to be born into it. And that's what the gospel is all about. So spiritual warfare at its core is a fight for control of a person's thinking. Now, as you fill your mind with God's word, you begin to think like God thinks, plain and simple, which means you stop thinking like the world thinks. The result will be that you will be transformed in your life from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. Now, but here in Romans 1, 
verses 21 to 25, Paul is dealing with pagans, unbelievers, who reject the knowledge of God, first of all, in creation. They reject his existence, even though the creation uh, is a powerful testimony to the existence of God. But then they go on and reject the knowledge of God in his word. The result is that rather than having the light of God's truth to guide them and keep them safe from the devil's lies, there's nothing more powerful than the truth of God to keep you from Satan's lies. I, don't, I could spend my whole life learning about all the lies out there. Satan has sown the world with. All the false religious systems. I, don't, I, I have not done that. I've just taken the time to study the truth. So I'm going to use the analogy. I don't know if it's true. It probably is. If you work for the Treasury Department in their um, counterfeit division, they don't even let you touch a counterfeit bill for, I don't know, several months or weeks. I don't know. What they do is they give you the real thing, and they let you study it and study it and look at it and feel it until you know the real thing so well that when a counterfeit comes across your path, comes across your desk, you can immediately know it's counterfeit. Know God's word. In these last days, be a student of the word of God. Now, Paul is dealing with these people that rather than embrace God's light, walk in his truth, no. They would rather walk in darkness. They would rather uh, live sinful, wicked lives because their flesh wants that. And so uh, instead of God's truth guiding them and keeping them from the devil's lies, they become enveloped and shrouded and imprisoned in demonic spiritual darkness. Let's read Romans 1, verses 21 to 25 again to kind of set the stage for next week. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became Fools, interesting, the Greek word is the word we, same word we get our word moron from. <laughs> hey, God said it, I did <laughs> Professing to be wise, they became morons and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Let me just set this up for next week's study. A very important study uh, that will explain the world we're living in in a way you may never have thought of. It all began in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we have the headwaters of two information streams. The headwaters of two information streams that flowed into the whole world and down through the centuries and from which all religious ideologies and many secular also have descended. As I said, they both got their start in the Garden of Eden. What were these two information streams? Well, in the Garden of Eden there was the Word of God, which was the basis for Judeo-Christianity. And then you had the lie of the devil which became the basis for every other belief system. Again, in John 8, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. But of all the lies the devil has filled the world with, there is one lie that has given birth to them all, 
spiritually speaking. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul calls it what? The lie. Not a lie. It's the lie. It is the mother of all lies that has given birth, birth to all the false religious systems and cults and many secular thoughts down through the centuries. We'll look at this. We've taken a little extra time in the first 25 verses because there's so much here that we need to understand. The pace will pick up uh, as soon as we get past verse 25. But I want you to understand, we're laying groundwork for the entire study, but also for our understanding of the world we're living in, the fallen world. So next week we want to look at the lie. What it means, what it, what's involved in this lie, how it's given, given rise to all the other false religious systems in the world. So God willing, we will study that next time. Father... We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And as long as we walk in the light of your truth, we will never stumble in darkness, the devil's lies. Give us grace, Lord, as we continue studying your incredible word, this incredible book, Romans. We pray that your spirit would continue to be our teacher, continue to open our understanding of the things you have placed here for our learning, and giving us grace to then apply these truths into our lives. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.